So I've been in Ephesians verse by verse, but we're taking a little time this fall to talk about some of the distinctives of our church here at Placerita Baptist Church. And if you've not been with us the last couple of weeks, I really encourage you to listen to both of those sermons because we're talking a lot about several large changes that might be taking place here, at least some things that we're going to vote on at our annual meeting. And just to review those changes is we're talking about moving from a congregational-led church to an elder-led church. We already have elders who lead. Technically, the congregation is uh, still voting, and so we're going to have a vote at the end of the year to never vote again. All right, so I've tried to teach from God's word that, uh, that voting doesn't appear to be in scripture, but rather we want to trust in God's ordained leadership through the church in the elders that he's called to serve over the church. And then last week we looked at a little bit about deacons and deaconesses. We tried to make a biblical case uh, for why deacons should be men and where our present elder board uh, would prefer that we move towards a direction that deaconesses no longer exist here as an office, that we just move forward as men. The whole message last week was on that. So I invite you to listen to that. And then a couple other changes that we're considering would be moving again away from the Baptist Association of the General Association of Regular Baptists. And just to confirm with you guys, we we have nothing against the General Association of Regular Baptists. We just don't participate with them as much as we participate with other organizations like those who would attend the Shepherds Conference or Together for the Gospel would be the main two where our church really lines up a little bit more there. So if we're going to seek counsel or input or compare what we do at churches, we would probably be looking in that environment uh, over the environment of the General Association of Regular Baptists. So I'm kind of like, let's get all in or let's get out. And I'm thinking that it's best and our elders believe it would be best for us just to move out of that. And then with that would be coming a name change from Placerita um, Baptist Church to Placerita Bible Church. We believe here at Placerita that our utmost sense of authority is not Baptistic history, though we value it greatly, that our utmost authority comes from the Bible. So if we're going to give our life one day for what we believe in, it would never be, oh, we're good Baptists. I was born a Baptist. I'll die a Baptist. It would be, no, no, I was born again because of God's word and I'll die for the authority of scripture. Amen. I hope nobody in here would take a bullet just because you're Baptist. All right. But you take a bullet for the Bible because that's life and death. And so those are some of the reasons and the rationale behind why we're trying to move from being a Baptist church to a Bible church, not to mention other things such as sometimes the word Baptist carries a lot of negative connotations. Sometimes it carries positive connotations. I've been told that some have joined this church simply because it is a Baptist church. I've also been told by about a hundred or so new members who've come over the course of the year that I've been here, they ask in the new membership class, Adam, what does it mean to be a Baptist? So most of the people who are joining don't come from Baptist roots. They just come say, hey, we just want to come to an expository preaching church. That's kind of uh, the main reason, maybe a local body who uh, does discipleship in small groups well. And and, uh, so that's why we're thinking about moving uh, to a Bible church, which would be independent. By the way, we're presently independent, even though we're Baptist. Just so you understand, we have no governing board over us except our elder board, uh, which is held accountable by the doctrinal statement of our church and, of course, by the body, which would still be true if we make these changes. We would still be held accountable by our doctrinal statement and by you as brothers and sisters in Christ to help give us input and to help give us uh, some wisdom and prayer and even to confront us should we get off course. Okay, so that's kind of what we're in the middle of the last two weeks. Again, what were elder rule and then deacon deaconesses. And then today we're going to talk about biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, this is a big issue that relates specifically to elder being men only. This church has never had a woman pastor 
And by the grace of God, we never planned to have a woman pastor. This church has never had a woman elder, and we never planned to have a woman elder. And so this message is largely focused on how to have biblical roles and responsibilities, both at home and at church, which deals primarily with elders. But we also want to tie it in just a little bit with the idea of deacon and deaconesses. All right. So it most prominently applies to the the elder team. But I think there's a couple of uh, things that might make us consider why we're moving from deacon uh, uh, deacon asked to just deacons only. Okay. So why don't you pray with me? We'll dive into our time here together. Father, thank you for the joy of being a part of a Bible believing church. And God, this church has always been a Bible believing church. And we're grateful for the rich heritage of the godly men and women who've been at this church for a number of years. And we pray God that the changes that are, uh, that we'll be voting on would, would bring our church to greater unity and greater clarity and a greater functionality of how we do and why we do what we do day to day. And so God, would you give grace to our body as we go through this potential transition? Would you allow us to communicate openly and transparently? And humbly as we consider these things. And so I pray this morning, God, as we, in, as we dive into this important topic of biblical manhood and womanhood, that you would make your word clear in our hearts, in our minds, as we seek to move forward. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start off this morning by sharing with you a kind of a humorous uh, illustration out of Daniel Aiken's book on genders. Daniel Aiken is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I've heard him speak on a number of occasions. He's a godly man and a great writer. And he wrote a book about this whole idea of the gender controversy, if you will. And he just kind of wanted to acknowledge that men and women are different. And so he, he says this in the book, is it a cat Is it a woman? Maybe it's both. Why? And he goes on to give a few humorous, so lighten up a little bit, similarities between cats and women. You want to hear them? Or you want me to just get straight to the scripture? Okay, you want to hear them. All right, here we go. Is it a cat? Is it a woman? Maybe it's both. He gives 10 reasons of these similarities. Number one, they do what they want. Surely he's talking about cats, right? Yeah, he's talking about cats. Number two, they rarely listen to you. Definitely cats. Uh, number three, they're totally unpredictable. Now he's moving over a little bit, all right? Maybe to the woman's side there a little bit. Uh, they whine when they're not happy. When you, when you want to play, uh, when you want, number five, when you want to play, they want to be alone. That could be true. Uh, number six, when you want to be alone, they want to play. Uh, number seven, they expect you to cater to their every whim. Definitely cats. Um, Number eight, they're moody. Some women are like that, but not most. Uh, Number nine, just just kidding. Come on, lighten up, guys. Uh, Number number nine, they can drive you nuts and cost you an arm and a leg. And then number ten, which I think we would all agree, they leave hair everywhere. The conclusion is cats are tiny little women in fur coats. All right, ladies, you think that's bad. Watch out, guys. You ready? Is it a dog? Is it a man? Maybe it's both. Why? Number one, they lie around all day. Sprawled out on the most comfortable piece of furniture in the house. Talking about dogs. Yeah. Number two, they can hear a package of food opening a half a block away. But they can't hear you even if they're in the same room. 
Number three, they leave their toys everywhere. Number four, they growl when they are not happy. Number five, when you want to play, they want to play. Number six, when you want to be left alone, they still want to play. (laughs) Number seven, they are great at begging. Number eight, they will love you forever if you feed them and rub their tummies. Number nine, they do disgusting things with their mouths, and then they try to give you a kiss. Number ten, they can look dumb and lovable all at the same time. Conclusion, dogs are tiny little men in fur coats. Well, just a little humor, right? To acknowledge the obvious differences that exist between men and women. Women are a little bit more like cats, stereotypically, maybe. Men are a little bit more like dogs, stereotypically, maybe not always, but you understand the gist, the jest and the, and the fun behind some of those analogies. But unfortunately, some remove all of those inherent differences between men and women as they, as they pursue some kind of unisex culture. In fact, many are confused today about the roles of men and women in the church and at home. There are professors at well-known Bible colleges and seminaries that teach that God made men's and women's roles interchangeable and that the traditional roles that are seen in the Bible are nothing more than a myth or a simplistic interpretation of God's word. The heat on this subject keeps rising today as books and articles keep rolling off the presses. And all you have to do is really look at some of the billboards around our nation to see where it says pastors, his and her church. There's lots of billboards like that. I've seen all over in Georgia, in Houston. I've seen a couple in L.A. We'll have a picture of a church, right, with the husband and wife. And it just says pastors so-and-so. For example, when I lived in Houston, Texas, I had the opportunity to visit Lakewood Church where pastors Joel and Victoria Osteen both serve in a pastoral role over the church. In fact, when I visited there, that's one time that I did, uh, they have Victoria preach a little bit of a sermon, then they do a little bit more praise and worship, and then Joel preaches. And let me tell you something, Victoria is a better preacher. She can bring it. So the idea is the, the idea is really, is that appropriate? Is it right to have men and women serve interchangeably in important God-given roles, both at the church and at home? And so hopefully you're starting to ask good questions like, wow, Adam, this could be controversial. You sound to be a little bit over the top about that. Well, as we look at God's word today, hopefully you'll have a deeper conviction of the importance for us to value both men and women in the way they were created and to allow God to dictate to us from his word the differences that we clearly see. Now, to start off, this isn't in your notes, but it'll be on the PowerPoint. Let's talk about the two positions that exist, two opposing views. Let me define them for you. The first one is what's called egalitarian, or you could say egalitarianism. So an egalitarian is one who believes Men and women are created equal before God and have the same roles and responsibilities in the church and at home, which are interchangeable. So again, the egalitarian position would be, hey, God created men and women equal and their roles, both at church and home, are interchangeable. 
So you can have a woman pastor, you can have a woman be the head of the house, you can have it however you want because they're completely interchangeable. The complementarian, on the other hand, says this, it would be one who believes men and women are created equal before God. So the complementarian and the egalitarian both agree on that first point. Men and women are created completely equal before God. But notice the difference in the complementarian view is that the complementarian would say, but they have distinct roles and responsibilities, both at church and at home. So the, the difference still stays there because these two complement each other to the glory of God. And so we don't want to mix their role distinctions. We want to allow the man to be the man God's called the man to be, the woman to be the woman that God's called the woman to be, and not to mix the two together as if, as if it's not important in the way that it's articulated in Scripture. And so God has distinct roles and responsibilities that he's given to men and women in the church and at home, which are to complement each other to the glory of God. God. And in light of this controversy, uh, this has developed before us just due to our culture that begins to mix things up. It's our own sinful nature that we don't want to respond to differences. We want to each think that we can do whatever we want. Or it could also have arisen from a misunderstanding of the authority of God's word. And so I thought it would be wise this morning for us to look at this important issue and what God has to say on biblical manhood and womanhood. A little bit over 10 years ago, I had the privilege of taking a class with Wayne Grudem at the Master's Seminary, who has written several books on this subject. And I believe that he's an incredible scholar and a leader in this, in this area of clarity in the church. He's kind of passed the buck in a good way to the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, who's kind of picked up the cause to fight hard for the distinction that we see biblically in the roles between men and women. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is share with you six key issues in this manhood and womanhood controversy, which I really took and adapted maybe slightly from Wayne Grudem. Here's number one. Men and women are equal in value and dignity. So we certainly want to start off there as we already have. Hey, we're not saying that they're not equal. We're saying that they are equal. In fact, your next uh, point there, uh, your first blank, if you're taking notes would be this, both men and women are created in the image of God. God's word couldn't be more clear. You're already there in Genesis chapter one, skip down to verse 27, where it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And so I believe it's very clear in this verse that both men and women are created in the image of God. In fact, the Bible emphasizes this in the verse when it just says, hey, both male and female. Yes, he created mankind in his image, which simply means that we are, as human beings, uh, representations of God. I mean, you're created in a different way than an animal or a plant. You understand that animals and plants don't have souls. They're not redeemable. They don't have this vision of who God is by their very nature. But you and I as human beings represent the glory of God. And we have the opportunity to be redeemed by Christ's blood so that we can be better pictures and represent Christ well. And so the idea is that men and women do this equally. It's not like somehow, well, men do that really good, but women, they kind of stink at it. And it's certainly not like not that, well, women are so beautiful, they do it really well, and these lazy men over here, they really stink at it. 
Well, we both can be good at it or bad at it, depending on how we live as we live to the glory of God. And so we're certainly equal, created in that image of God. This is true of the heart of every believer. So we should treat, in light of that, every man and woman with great respect that every man and every woman is created in the image of God, only the redeemed ones are truly in the image of Christ. But the opportunity is every man and every woman has the opportunity to display the glory of God. So that ought to raise our respect for the genders. It ought to raise our respect for the sexes. It's not like, well, there's only godly men who preach and write books and these women, what do they think they know? Well, they know a lot by the grace of God. There's a lot of godly women who are much well better versed in scripture than men. And so the idea is it's not that one's better than the other. We just have our specific roles and responsibilities of how that plays out. And so not only are men and women created in the image of God, but we could also say men and women have equal value before God. We're created with equal value. Men and women have equal value before God for all eternity, for that is who we are, uh, who, who created us. And this truth should exclude all feelings of priority or inferiority about one sex being better than the other uh, or more important than the other. I mean, in the New Testament, in Acts 2, uh, Peter writes this, but or Luke writes this as Peter's there preaching. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, that could be a complex text that I'm not going to get into in times right now in prophecy. I just want to make the simple point. God loves men and women. He uses men and women to do his work on this earth. And Paul couldn't be more clear in his epistles that the church was made up of both Jew and Greek. It was made up of both slave and free. It was made up of both man and woman to the glory of God. And so as we're redeemed in Christ, we have the opportunity to display the equality and the value that God places on humankind because we are his creation. And so we don't want to get into that school schoolyard argument of who's better, the boys or the girls. You know, sometimes that happens at my house. My three boys will say, Dad, the boys are better, right? We're stronger, right? And I'm like, that's right. And then I'll look at Lisa and I'm like, oh, oh, oh I mean, uh, no, 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 we're not stronger. I mean, I mean, well, kind of, but there's other ways. The girls are more beautiful and they can, uh, they can, uh, you know, do music better and they can do this better and they can do shopping better than we can. So we can't do that. <laughs> so we get into this little spat sometimes just kind of in a fun way, right? In jest, but sometimes it gets taken up to where like, man, I'm glad I'm a man. I'm glad I'm not a woman or some woman is like, oh, I'm just so glad I'm not a man, you know, uh, <laughs> So, I mean, the idea is, while there are differences, we certainly want to respect each other, right? We want to say, well, thank God I am who God's made me to be. Thank God I am who God's made me to be. And honestly, that one biblical issue would wipe out all of the transgender type garbage that's going on in our culture, along with sex changes and everything else. There's somebody born and it's like, you know, I've read articles and different news things that you probably have where some little boy is born and he's like, mom, dad, I think I'm a girl. And the parents go along with it. And they're like, well, maybe you are. You want to wear this pink dress today, sweetie? And it's like, are you kidding me? A man's a man. A woman's a woman. That's the way God created us. That's the way that we best partake in, in developing 
a view of the glory of God to embrace the value and the dignity that God has given to each gender. Let me move on to our second point of key emphasis here would be this. Number two, men and women have different roles and responsibilities both at church and at home as part of the created order. What will happen in this debate is basically egalitarians will say, as the effect of sin entered the world in Genesis 3, the roles got flipped. They should have always been, you know, you know, universally exchanged. But after sin entered the world, now they've kind of been flip-flopped. And we need to get back to that universal exchange between men and women. What this point is trying to say is like, well, actually, God created us from the very beginning to be different. And I love the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood who tackled this issue back in the 80s. And in 1987, wrote the Danvers Statement, which included these following affirmations. And they are in your outline. It's point A. A, B, and C. Here's the first thing that this statement says, is that number one, or A, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. So that's pretty much what we've been saying all the way up to this point, right? We're created equal, but we have some distinction. But notice now we're starting to tie it into a little bit uh, to the idea of that's the way that God created us. That's exactly how he created us. In fact, number one sub point under that point A would be this. Adam is responsible or was responsible for naming the animals. Look over in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And every married man said... Amen. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So notice here, God had given the responsibility because Adam was created first and Eve was not yet present to name these animals. And so verse 20 says, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So not only does Adam name all the animals, but while he's doing that, he's realizing, hey, I need a compliment. I need somebody to come alongside me. I see boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, I don't have a girl, right? So number two, then we see God created his wife and Adam was responsible for naming his helper. Verses 21 through 24. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so again, what we're seeing is the priority according to the created order, was Adam providing some leadership here by naming all of the animals and the plants and also by naming, giving the very name woman to his wife. And of course, he thought she's beautiful. He's so happy that she's part of him, but he still gives her a name there. And then marriage is instituted in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is a God-ordained institution. It's not to be defined by the government. It's not to ultimately be, uh, you know, 
described by our government. Uh, God has given the government the ability to uh, constitute a marriage legally, if you will, as long as it's biblical. And as soon as it's not biblical, then the Christian doesn't really recognize it in the same way we would, the way God intended it. So I'm just saying the whole idea of marriage is right here in 224. And so the second statement, let's move on, of the council of biblical manhood and womanhood would be this. Number two, or B, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are, are, are ordained by God as a part of the created order that should find an echo in every human heart. And so here's where we see it affirmed up a little bit more, not only from the Old Testament, but from the New Testament. Look at number one, a woman is to learn quietly and with all submissiveness. So turn now to the New Testament over to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and starting in verse 11, we read just that. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, we're starting to build a case as we're going to follow this, this argument, if you will, of Paul as he's writing to Timothy uh, about how men and women are to be seen and used with their gifts and giftedness in the local church. And so he starts off by saying, hey, we want the women to be quiet and to learn with all submissiveness. Now, this doesn't mean that a woman uh, can't speak in a church. Uh, I, I mean, like literally open her mouth like, well, we're going to church. I better zip it up until we're all done. And then I'll unzip it as soon as we step out the back. And now I can start talking again. That's not what it's talking about. He's simply saying in the context, as we'll see, of teaching and exercising leadership, that women should be those that are following and submitting to the leaders of the church and not necessarily participating as one of the leaders of the church. Look at number two. A woman is not to exercise authority over a man. A woman is not to teach, I should have said, to teach or exercise authority over a man. Look at the very next two verses, or maybe just the next verse, 1 Timothy 2, 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I mean, how much clearer could that be? To hold your finger there and turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll come right back to 1 Timothy, but 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 says, the woman should keep silent, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also sets. And so here, in a couple of different places in the New Testament, it couldn't be more clear that God's design for the beautiful gender of the females that live amongst us is that they would not be exercising authority over or teaching in any way over men in the church. And so the idea here is that women have their role and their responsibility, but it's not to be seen in teaching. And so you might ask, well, what's the rationale behind that? Why would he say such a thing? We'll look at the next verse in 1 Timothy 13 through 15 there in chapter 2. A woman is to learn this from the wisdom of of God's created order. The rationale that he gives when he explains this, he doesn't say because, well, women aren't gifted to teach. They can't teach. They don't know what they're doing. That's not what he says. This is what he says in verses 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. So here's what he's saying. I want men to teach and exercise authority, not women. Here's why. 
I created man first and then woman. It was Eve who originally was deceived in the garden and then Adam. Notice, I'm not saying here Adam had no culpability. In fact, there's other passages that say in Adam we all sinned. And so if you want to really hang the responsibility on somebody in a major way, the Bible hangs it on Adam. But in this particular passage, it is saying, hey, women were deceived. And so what I want women to do at this point in order to kind of redeem themselves, and and this is like, you know, this is like, uh, just just saying, hey, women are redeemed through the gospel, just as men are redeemed through the gospel. But here's my heart. I don't want women to be involved in teaching. I want them to be involved in childbearing. That's what he's saying. I want them not to be worried about those responsibilities that I've given to men. I want them to be worried about the responsibilities that I've given to them. And what I want them to do for every married woman who has kids is to focus on raising their children under the teaching and admonition of Scripture. That becomes their top priority. Overleading a church, overleading or teaching in any ministry would be for the woman to raise her kids to be godly kids. And so when it says this is how she's saved through that, it doesn't mean literally salvation is now through having kids. So women, come on, have a bunch of babies and you can be saved. It's a work that you do for salvation. It's not what he's saying, right? You're saved through faith in Christ. He's simply saying that the redeemable uh, command for a woman to be involved in... Again, I understand if you're not married or not able to have children, you may not fit this to a T. But by and large, the idea is that women would be getting married, having children. Women spend more time with children than men do. Men are off killing things and tilling the soil, right? While a woman is supposed to be at home raising the children to love Christ. And if you love Christ today and you were born in a home with a godly mom, I bet she had a lot to do with it. Because it's a beautiful role that women play. Without them focusing on what they need to focus on, our families would not be what they ought to be. Now, with that being said, obviously the man is still the head of the home. He's supposed to be also raising the kids under the teaching and admonition of the Lord. He's to be gently holding his wife accountable to discipline and teaching. And when he's there, he ought to be doing the majority of that. But I'm just saying he's not there for hours per day. And when he's not there, the woman is then in charge of doing exactly what God's called her to do. And it's a beautiful thing. That's way more beautiful having an impact on your kids in that way than, you know, being the president of the United States or having an incredible career. Now, again, I'm not saying that no woman at any point can have a career. I'm just saying that you want to make sure this responsibility comes first. And as you get that responsibility working and going, and maybe the kids are getting older or whatever, there's certain times where a woman needs to go to work uh, in special cases, or, or the kids are getting older and they're able to go to work because that, a lot of that work has already been done. But they, you see the general idea here is that, is that that's what God has in his mind for women to do, both at church and at home. And this is what he's got men doing is something a little bit different. And so the idea here is that uh, let's move on to our, our next uh, point there, C, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and not as a result of sin. So here we're simply saying that just because the fall happened doesn't mean now these roles are different than how they were intended. Now we're saying from the very beginning, God created a man to be a man, a woman to be a woman. And in fact, if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, we're just kind of reminded, again, from a New Testament point of view, what our role and responsibility ought to be at home. 
Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Are you starting to see why it's so important to understand this role is the same at church as it is at home? It's not like, oh, at home, we kind of flip-flop our roles, but at church, it's this way. Or at church, it's this way, but at home, now the man's the head. No, both at church and at home, God has set it up so that the guys are the faithful leaders by the grace of God, and the women, hopefully, are going to be the faithful followers by the grace of God. And notice here that wives are compared to the bride, the church, right? He's saying, to the wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. In other words, every day you submit to your husband, you're displaying the glory of God. Every day that the wife submits to the husband, she's telling the world, I'm part of the redemptive order of human beings and the way we dispel the gospel or display, excuse me, display the gospel is by me submitting to my husband in some things, right? What does verse 24 say? In everything to their husbands. But what if he gets really picky? Well, you should have married him. I mean, in some ways it's like, hey, you're married to this guy. You need to have a heart to submit to him in everything. This would be God's desire for you. Notice it doesn't stop there. Guys, are you ready? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Guys, I think you have it way harder. In some ways, you're supposed to be like Christ. You're supposed to be willing to die. Not one time, but every day that you're loving her with sacrificial love to honor her and to prefer her. That you are responsible to wash her with the water of God's word. That you're to lead her gently and graciously to all the truths of God's word. That you're to receive from her as well input and suggestions and prayers and even confrontation at time. If you're in sin, thank God for godly wives who help complement the man. Thank God for godly men who help complement the woman that we could help each other together display the gospel in these ways. And so these three affirmations rightly support the complementarian view of man and woman being equal before God, but having different roles and responsibilities. And by contrast, again, the egalitarians do not support these created differences, but teach that men and women share jointly in the responsibilities of bearing and rearing children and have dominion over the created order. In other words, man never really has leadership. It's totally a team approach with equal authority. Now, I would say it is a team approach, but at the end of the day, the leader's got to lead. And at the end of the day, God's called men to lead his church, right? Back to that First Timothy 2 passage. The idea here is that he's told women, hey, I don't want you teaching or exercising authority. That's what the men do. And since that's what the men do at our church, that's why we see and understand elders being specifically and only for men. That the elders need to be able to teach 
They need to be men who are dignified and men who lead well. We would have a woman teach in other areas that we'll be talking about here in in just a moment, but not over men. And so that's why we wouldn't have women be elders. This is part of the reason why we wouldn't have, or we're suggesting at least, that maybe women shouldn't be deacons, is that what if a deaconess is somehow exercising authority over a man? So let's say we have some kind of function and the deaconess is over this and there's men and women working on this project and she's kind of giving orders, hey, I need you to do this, I need you to do that. It's possible. I'm not saying this happens, but I'm just saying it's possible for it to feel a little bit awkward, right? Like, well, hey, I'm kind of exercising authority over this man and I'm not supposed to be doing that. And so part of what we're trying to do is just kind of get away from any confusion and make it crystal clear that this this is what the men do. This is what the women do. And I'm going to highlight that. So hold that thought and I'm going to come back and illustrate that a little bit more. Let's move on to number three. Number three, the key uh, third issue here would be this. This is a matter of obedience to the Bible. At the end of the day, this isn't about what you think. And it's not about what I think. And it's not about what's popular. It's not about what our culture is saying. It's not about what makes sense in your own mind. It's just simply, what does the Bible teach? And that's why we're here this morning. People who don't understand this issue are much more culture-driven than conviction-driven based on the Word of God. And so we must know that the Bible says, and we got to live it out. And so the, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, has done exactly that. In 1998, the denomination of Southern Baptists adopted a statement that men and women, men and women are created equal in God's image, but have differences in their roles and in their responsibilities in marriage. In fact, I happened to be at that very convention, which was in Salt Lake City, Utah, when they cast their vote to adopt this statement to see equality, but differences in men and women. And shortly after that, a hundred Christian leaders signed a full page ad in USA Today saying Southern Baptist. You are right. We stand with you. In fact, a year later in 1999, Campus Crusade adopted the same statement. And I'm so thankful that 25 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of literature on this subject. And now due to an immense amount of books and authors and the Council of Biblical uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, we now have a lot of resources today to help us think through this issue. I'm encouraged that even James Dobson, after Campus Crusade adopted the statement, said this, quote, It is our prayer that additional denominations and parachurch organizations will join with the SBC in adopting this statement on marriage and family. Now is the time for Christian people to identify themselves unreservedly with the truths of the Bible, whether popular or not, close quote. I mean, the bottom line is, are we going to obey the Bible or not? I mean, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He says that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And so uh, generally speaking, if we love God, we're going to obey whatever he says. And so the question is, what does he say on this issue? And I think we're starting to see what he says, that men and women are created equal, but have differences. Turn with me, if you will, to First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter three. Here's what we're getting at here under our major heading uh, number three, uh, point number A. The Bible teaches elders are to be men, not women. The Bible teaches the elders are to be men, not women. First Timothy chapter three, verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Okay, so there in verse 1, he's going to be talking about what, what is it that an elder should be? What is it that makes an elder? And notice that he uses the third person singular masculine. And he's talking here throughout this whole description of an elder from a man's point of view. Verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. So there he's articulating that it's a, it's a task that he desires in verse 1. He must be a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Well, we've already looked at the Timothy passage. It said a woman should not teach over a man or exercise authority over a man. But here in this passage, it says the elder's got to be able to teach. So we deduce from that as well that an elder needs to be a man, not a woman. Verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Well, how many masculine pronouns do you have there? A bunch, right? It's saying, hey, you got to be the head of your house because this works both at church and at home. And so if you're going to do it at church, you need to be doing it at home. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must be uh, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And then last week we looked at verses 8 through 13, talking about deacons and the possibility of deaconesses and skip down to the end of that passage in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You know what he's saying? I'm going to show you guys how to do church. Here's how you have godly elders. Here's how you have godly deacons. Do it this way. He's told us the elders specifically, without any equivocation, have got to be men. There is room for that discussion about whether deaconesses could exist or not. I gave a whole message last week to share with you why I think deacons should be seen as men, not as women. Though it's not a great offense if somebody holds to a complementarian view and have deaconesses, I say it's just fine. That's just not where our present elder board is. And so moving on now to B, we see this. The Bible teaches women are to teach younger women, not men. Look at Titus 2 great passage that we love and adore so and we ought to because it's just fantastic titus chapter 2 helps bring great clarity to this issue in case we're thinking well women can't teach and they can't exercise authority over a man and like what are women supposed to do well titus 2 is the answer starting in verse 3 older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine they are to teach what is good You mean a woman can teach? Absolutely. They need to be teaching who? Verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I mean, part of what's at play here is that if a woman is doing anything outside of the confines of verses 3 through 5, God's word could be confused and maligned. I would take that passage to mean if a woman is teaching or serving as an elder, that it confuses the whole Bible. But if a woman is graciously and as a gifted woman teaching younger women, that's exactly what God's called her to do. In fact, I would say this. Some women 
have a better gift of teaching than many men. There's many women who are clearly given the gift of teaching. Take Nancy Lee DeMoss, for example. Take Martha Peace, for example. Godly women who are fantastic at teaching other women. But they don't teach over men. In fact, I love what the elders of the church that Martha Peace goes to. My parents happen to attend that church and uh, I know their pastor and elder team well and have interacted with Martha on a number of occasions. But I love the fact when she comes to a biblical counseling conference that she, uh, before she gets up to speak, typically they'll have somebody, a guy maybe come up and say, hey, this, this particular breakout session is for women. If you're a man, we're asking you to exit the back door and and to go to a different session. But you can't stay here because if you were to stay here, it goes against everything that we teach and believe. And so they simply handle that by just asking guys to leave. Like they won't let them stay. Well, I appreciate that because they're trying to be ultraly biblical and saying, hey, look, a woman can teach other women and children, but she's not to teach over men. In fact, sometimes we get into this and it almost sounds like, well, you guys are just trying to stifle the women from serving at the church. Look, there's only two things a woman can't do. Teach over men or exercise authority over men. Everything else she's welcome to do, invited to do, encouraged to do. So what is, what do those things include? A woman could be involved on the missions committee. She could help out serving in the children's ministry. She could help out with a disciple now. She could help out with weddings and funerals. She could be involved in decorating. She could help sing here on the worship stage. She could maybe share a testimony of a mission trip and what God did in her life. She could help serve by teaching other women in the women's ministry. She could help train up women uh, in, in discipling and teaching their own kids. She could help be involved in fundraisers. She could help do car washes. She could help. I mean, we could just go on and on. There's literally nothing else she can't do. We would invite and encourage every woman here. Don't feel stifled like, well, I really want to teach over men. Doggone it. If I don't get to do that, then I feel like they're just putting me in my place. No, we're opening the door to all of the ministries of our church, except being an elder or teaching or exercising any authority over a man. Other than that, we invite you. We want you. We plead with you. Please come help us. And guess what? You already are. Our church wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for the godly women who serve behind the scenes. Who do you think beats out who's serving in the children's ministry? I mean, the women got it down. The guys are like, uh, what do I do with this diaper? Uh, you know, they're like all confused. And the women are like, oh, let me help you with that. You know, they're all, all done. And you're like, wow, that's quick. You know, because we thank God for godly women who are serving in a great way here at our church. We, we have a cutoff, just so you know, in, in, in our, between our children's ministry and our youth ministry. So here at our church, we view age sixth grade to seventh grade or 12 to 13 is kind of that line that we draw that we say, hey, this is where you become a young adult. So at age 13, we expect our young men and our young women to act like young adults. And so we don't have any women teach in youth group. So our youth group starts at seventh grade. We don't have any women teaching there. We would never have a a female youth pastor. We have females who serve on staff along with their husband under the male leadership. And so they can teach in children's ministry. But even as the children get older, we try to start inserting males. And so if you're here at our church, you already know that for the younger classes, there might be a lot of women serve there. And sometimes husbands and wives obviously serve together. But as they get a little older, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, we start trying to plug our guys in and just say, hey, we want to go ahead and start modeling what you're going to get used to for the rest of your life. Male leadership. We need some godly dads to step up in children's ministry and show even children while women are encouraged to teach 
and blessed to teach and are fantastic teachers. Somewhere we start to transition and say, hey, let's start plugging guys in. Because when they get to youth group, it's men only teaching from that stage forward. And so that's just kind of how we've got it set up at our church. And that's what we want to encourage us to think about. That there's that children, when they turn 13, 6th to 7th grade, that's when they we start to see them as young adults. That's when we're going to start seeing them kind of be held accountable to, to everything that the scripture holds for adults. Uh, not that we don't hold our children accountable, but I'm just saying it kind of ups the ante a little bit in that particular transition. So that's kind of the cutoff for us where women can teach and where women would be asked not to teach or wouldn't be appropriate. All right, let's move on. The next key issue would be this. Number four, the equality and differences between men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. Now, what we're talking about here is a big theological picture, and it's really just, it's it's extremely important because what we're talking about here is the nature of God. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23. The nature of God is revealed in the Trinity, and we see in the nature of the Trinity similarities to what we see between men and women both at church and at home. You say, Adam, what are you talking about? Well, the Trinity serves as an example of how submission works in a marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23 says, And you are Christ's, and Christ is God. So there he's talking to the church at Corinth. Hey, believers, you belong to Christ. So you need to follow what he's saying do. And guess what? Christ belongs to God. So Christ follows what God says to do. Or look down at chapter 11, same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so you see the, the, the way it's set up is that a woman is to be under her husband. The husband is under Christ. Christ is under God. And so what we're saying here is the word head refers to the one who is in a position of authority over the other. The word kephale in the Greek uniformly does, uh, whenever it's used in ancient literature, always refers to that one person as being the head of or over another person or another group. And so Paul is referring to a relationship of authority between God the Father and God the Son. He is making a parallel between the relationship in the Trinity and the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage. Here's your next blank there. A, as the father and son are equal in deity and are equal in all their attributes, but different in role. So husband and wife are equal in personhood and value, but different in the roles that God has given them. So nowhere in scripture is the father, for example, seen submitting to the son. So we're talking about in the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. There's an equality. But there's a difference. The equality is they're all part of the Godhead. The difference is the father tells the son what to do. You say, well, Adam, where is that in scripture? How about John 4.34? John 4.34 says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus said, hey, look, I'm not here for me. I'm here for the father. I'm here to do exactly what my father wants me to do. Or Jesus said it this way, two chapters later in John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What a great model. That even in the Trinity, there's equality, but differences. 
And so the idea of headship didn't develop over the last couple of decades as this topic has become a more prominent issue in the church, nor did it begin with some of the writings of the Apostle Paul in the first century. Nor did it begin with some of the patriarchal fathers of the Old Testament. Nor did the idea of headship and submission begin with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. In fact, the idea of this complementarian viewpoint of equality with differences began in eternity past. It began in the Trinity. It began with the nature of God. As long as God has been around, we've seen the principles of equality with differences. Equality with differences. And so when did it begin? It was before creation. B there says the idea of headship and submission really never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And so again, we see something that man didn't just kind of come up with. But we see this in the very nature of God. And it's almost alarming that some egalitarians change their view on the Trinity to make it fit their model of marriage and church. And so their view of the Trinity would be like, well, sometimes the father submits to the son. Yeah, there's times where the son dictates what's going on and the father's got to follow him. Just like sometimes the wife's going to be in control and the husband needs to come under her. Well, it's just not true. I mean, you start tampering with the nature of the Trinity, you're starting to tamper with the nature of God. It's a very important issue that we get right as we look in God's word for clear answers. And so by this point, you might be saying, well, where do, where do they get this view anyway? Where do egalitarians even have a biblical leg to stand on? Well, turn to Ephesians 5. This may be one of their biggest verses that they would use to say, here's why we think that those roles of men and women are interchangeable, both at church at home. It's Ephesians 5. Uh, and, and start, we'll start in verse 18, just to get a little bit of context here. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18, we read this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it comes. Submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. There you go. Egalitarians will say, there it is. Verse 21. There it is, Tyson. It's right there, man. Verse 21 says they need to submit to each other. Okay, well, let's look at that in context. Notice again, verse 18. The general idea is for every Christian not to be drunk, but rather to be filled with the Spirit. Those of us who are filled with the Spirit as born-again believers are going to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making a melody, giving thanks to God. And then it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes on to explain or to qualify that statement. In verses 22 through 33, he says, hey, this is what this looks like at home in your marriage. And that's where he starts to say, hey, wife, submit to your husband. He's the head. You got to submit to him as unto the Lord. And then he qualifies what that looks like in the home. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says, hey, mama, daddy, you're in charge. Kids, you got to submit to what dad says and to what mom also says there at home. And then he parallels this to what happens at work. He says, slaves in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. Slaves, you got to submit to your master. The master's in charge. You're to submit to him. 
And so I would say that Ephesians 5.21 in no way gives any kind of egalitarian argument. Rather, it's totally qualified that the way we, in a general sense, submit to each other is wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents, slaves submit to masters. That's exactly what's going on in that context. So what I'm saying is there are no egalitarian verses in the Bible. They all point towards this perfect complement that men and women uh, work together as, as, as part of the redemptive uh, grace of God to demonstrate the gospel and their distinctive roles and responsibilities. Let's move on to number five. The, the equality and differences between men and women are very good. Okay, so we could say this, the genders, this is your next blank, the genders are good just the way God made them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So what do we read? The last verse of the first chapter of the Bible, on day six of creation, says, hey, just the way I did it is the way I like it. That's the way I like it. I like having men be men, women be women. That's how it's created. It's very good, just the way God made them. I don't know about you, but I'm actually very thankful for the differences between me and my wife. I'm very thankful for the physical differences that exist. I'm very thankful for all the other giftedness that we have that is different so that we can truly work together. I need her help. And I think from time to time, Maybe she needs a little help from me. But, you know, the idea is that we need each other, right, to show the glory of God. And so we want to know that the genders are good just the way God created them. But we, all, we could also say, does not the pot uh, talk back to the potter? Uh, does the pot talk back to the potter? In other words, look, we're created just the way we are. We don't need to be arguing with God about it. And, and that whole talk about election that Paul gives in Romans 9, 10 through 20 talking about salvation and election and predestination. But one of the principles he makes is that we don't have any right, no matter what condition we're in, to argue with God. And the truth is, on this issue, it's a matter, remember, of obedience. We don't have any right to argue with God. We're just part of the creation. We need to look at the creator and his word and submit to and follow his plan for us. Or the next point would be this. Does Christ talk back to God? I mean, Christ has already said, as we looked at some of those other verses, that he just wants to do his father's will. Or you could jot down John 530. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so we see that it's Christ's desire not to argue with God, but to rather to submit to him and to follow his will. Well, one last key would be this, number six, and you see it there listed as a chart. This controversy is much bigger than we realize because it touches all of life. In case you just think this is some theological conundrum that we're all in about a debate and you could care less whether it's this way or this way. Well, actually, it impacts every day, every day at church, every day at home. And this chart that I took from Wayne Grudem uh, definitely shows kind of what's going on within a marriage. Look there at the husband and then follow it across. If a husband is too weak, are too passive, not really fulfilling his role of leadership, then we call him a what? He's a wimp, right? And that's what's going on in our culture today is that men are scared to lead. They, they try to lead a little bit and then they, they think, well, that's not the way we should do it. And we should all be totally mutually submissive to each other and everything. And so I'm not going to really lead. Well, that husband is a wimp. Now, there's no excuse for the pendulum to swing all the way to the other side and become a tyrant. If he's too aggressive and says, shut up, woman, that's what I told you to do. Now do it. Well, we got big problems there too, right? Like, come on in for some counseling, bro. 
chill out. Like, let me help you. I think your marriage could use a little work, right? So certainly we don't want the pendulum to be over here on the passive side where he's a wimp. We don't want it to be over here on the aggressive side where he's a tyrant. We're always looking for that biblical middle of that biblical ideal of being a loving, humble headship, right? We want him to be loving and humble, but to still fulfill the God-given role of being the head of his house and under Christ, leaders in the church. Let's look at the wife. Arrows of passivity for her is that she would become a doormat. Well, you said, I can't say a word. I don't say a word. Well, if that's you then that's not right either. We're not saying, oh, you can't open your mouth and ever speak or anything. Women are meant to be seen but not heard. No, that's not the approach to take at all. We want women to speak up, to voice their thoughts and concerns in the appropriate context in a way that would honor and magnify the grace of God. This is why as elders, sometimes we have a meal together, lunch or dinner with our wives. And from time to time, we'll meet together with our wives and we'll say, hey, ladies, what do you think? What do you think about what's going on in the church? Give us some input so that we can know what you're thinking. This is why I met with Carolyn McGuire, the leader of our ladies ministry, as we were going through these changes here at the church. I said, hey, Carolyn, what do you think? Give me some feedback. You're like the leader of the women's ministry. What do you think about this? Because we want ladies input so we don't want ladies to be a doormat where they're just like well i don't have anything to contribute i can't say anything no you talk and discuss and you offer in grace and in humility biblical and godly thoughts and ideas and principles from god's word at the same time we don't want a woman to be too aggressive or she could become a usurper you know the woman says well i'll wear the pants in the family my husband's not leading then fine i'll lead this is what we're doing Well, that could be wrong too, right? If the idea is now she's usurping the authority that God's given to the husband. So we're looking for wives who will be in that middle biblical ideal of being a joyful, intelligent submission. That's what we're looking for. Intellect and grace and sanctification coming under the headship of the husband and home and the headship of the elders at the church. And so try as it may, secular culture and the evangelical church will never succeed in obliterating gender differences between men and women. We have God's word which defines for us our God-given roles and responsibilities. As Christian people, let us be known for, uh, for giving, not for giving into worldly misunderstandings and mixing up these genders, but rather let us be known as godly men and godly women. So let me give you just a little charge, if I can, before we do the take-home application. Let me just say to the men, let us be men who love our wives as Christ loved the church by laying down our lives. Let us be men who lead as Christ led and serve as he served. May we raise up a generation of husbands whose faithfulness mirrors the faithfulness of God. Fathers who care for our children as our heavenly father cares for his. Let us be men who hold our authority over those who will be judged by, as those who will be judged by God. And men like Christ who seek that the first would become the last. And if we'll exercise our biblical masculinity in these godly ways, we make it easier for our wives to also be biblical women, women who are inclined to show honor and respect for their husbands, women who will not focus primarily on the outward appearance, but on the hidden person of the heart. 
women who will hope in God and adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Women who do not seek to be men, but who beautify the world by being submissive to their own husbands. May we be men and women to the glory of God, for that is exactly what God has created us to be. That's the challenge to our church. And with that comes these simple take-home thoughts to leave you with. At Placerita Baptist Church, the elders will always be men, but every woman is encouraged to serve in a variety of ways. The way it is at this church, the men will be the leaders as God has given us in his word, hopefully in grace and humility. And we're inviting Every woman to serve in all the ways that we've already described. There's so many things that you're doing and that you could continue to do and excel still more. Secondly, at PBC, we're considering making deacons men only so as not to confuse this important complementarian position. So number one is a definite that's already existing at the church, will always exist here. Number two is we're suggesting we make a change so that deaconesses no longer at times feel awkward about heading up some kind of oversight over a man and that we could better highlight and better model this complementarian position. And number three, at PBC, we encourage every marriage to function with these principles in mind. This is how we want to relate to each other. This is how we want to think of each other. Equal but different. Living out biblical manhood and womanhood to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the attentiveness of our church this morning. Thank you for this issue that is so vital that we understand that men and women are created equal before God in our value and in our dignity. But we have distinct roles and responsibilities which are different both at church and at home. God, would you provide for us great clarity on this issue as we think it through, as we pray for your wisdom, as we try to function as a church that would give glory and honor to you in how we relate to each other and how we relate to the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.